This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Valerie Epps, and I'm a professor at Suffolk University Law School and also the co-director of the International Law Concentration. Today I'd like to talk about diplomatic immunity. The issue of an American citizen called Raymond Davis getting arrested in Pakistan has been very much in the news because when he was arrested uh, allegedly for shooting to death two Pakistanis, the American government immediately claimed that he was a diplomatic agent and therefore immune from criminal jurisdiction of Pakistan. But the case has generated a great deal of interest because there is actually a video that shows him uh, when he's asked what he's doing in Pakistan, he simply says he's a consultant to the U.S. consulate and doesn't at all mention that he's allegedly a diplomatic agent. We've also had the extraordinary example of the CIA actually revealing publicly that he is a CIA agent. And that does two things. One is that it's quite extraordinary in the history of our intelligence services for them to reveal the name of a person who is an agent publicly. Perhaps they felt pushed to do it because a number of European newspapers had already suggested that. But even so, it's pretty remarkable. And secondly, of course, the United States government is is trying extremely hard to have him released from arrest and jail on the grounds that he is a diplomat. So this is why I thought that it would be interesting for people if I spoke about diplomatic immunity generally and then more particularly as it applies to this case. Diplomatic immunity has a very ancient history going back many centuries and the idea here is that if you send representatives of your state to another state to represent you in some way or another, they should in a sense in the old days we would have described it as representatives of the state they also are entitled to sovereign immunity. Now that notion of sovereign immunity is attaching to diplomatic agents. We don't talk of it in those terms. We now have a general treaty called the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations drawn up in 1961 and went into force in 1964. And the United States ratified the treaty in 1972 And just for the record, Pakistan actually ratified it in 1962. This treaty is a comprehensive treaty spelling out the levels of immunity that various members of the diplomatic staff have when they are accredited overseas. And also indicating that diplomats that we send overseas agree to comply with the laws of the host country. And the way that diplomatic immunity works is that before the United States or any other state (coughs) sends its diplomats to another country, the first thing it does is it sends a list of those diplomats to the receiving country. 
the receiving country will then review the list and determine whether those people are acceptable or not as diplomats. If they're not acceptable, then there's negotiation that goes on between the two countries till at least till at last you come up with an acceptable list. Now, there's no obligation upon any state to enter into any form of relationships with any other state. But if a state decides that it wishes to have diplomatic relations with another state, then it will receive the list, determine whether that's an acceptable list, and then once it's said, okay, we're ready to accredit these diplomats, then the diplomats can travel there. And then, for the most part, they do have complete criminal immunity, complete immunity from criminal jurisdiction, and almost complete immunity from civil jurisdiction. Now, one of the questions that students ask and people ask is, why would any state agree to give a group of foreigners total immunity from jurisdiction? What if they commit terrible crimes such as murder? And the general answer to that is that, in general, states have considered this to be a very useful tool If you didn't have diplomatic immunity, any time there were tensions between two countries, either country could arrest the diplomats on trumped-up charges and use them as a bargaining chip in the negotiations that might follow. Now, we do know from time to time there have been severe abuses of diplomatic immunity where diplomats have committed very serious crimes. But this only happens from time to time. And so far, at least, countries seem to feel that giving diplomatic immunity protects their own diplomats, and consequently, they're willing to give that same protection to the diplomats that they receive from other countries. If a diplomat posted to a foreign country is thought to have committed a crime, if it's a minor crime like shoplifting, for example, what will happen generally in practice is that the host state will go to the foreign diplomatic mission and say, look, We've had a complaint from, let's say, a big department store that on their surveillance videos they can see your diplomatic agent quietly pocketing several wristwatches. Now, what we would like you to do is investigate this, return to us, and we'll return it to the store, the wristwatches, and we are going to disaccredit this diplomat and we'd like you to send him or her home. And so with minor crimes it gets dealt with on that level and what will happen is that the accused diplomat if the evidence is forthcoming that yes they have been shoplifting will simply be sent home and that will be the end of the case. When you have a more serious crime such as, for example, some sort of homicide, what will happen is the host state will ask the sending state 
to waive its diplomatic immunity. And any state is permitted to waive its immunity. The right to waive the immunity does not belong to the diplomat. It belongs to the diplomat state. So, for example, uh, we had a fairly recent case in Washington, D.C., where there was a diplomat from the country of Georgia who was arrested in D.C. for drunken driving and vehicular homicide. He had crashed into a young woman and killed her. And the police arrested him. He whips out his diplomatic passport and says, you can't arrest me. The D.C. authorities get in touch with the federal authorities and say, we're holding this guy. He says he's a diplomat. What are we supposed to do? And the answer came back once they verified who he was, that yes, he was a diplomat, and no, they could not hold him in arrest, so they released him. But the U.S. authorities, seeing that he had killed a young woman, and it seemed as if he was drunk when he did it, essentially went to the ambassador from Georgia and said, we want you to waive your immunity. And obviously the ambassador gets back in touch with the the president of uh, Georgia. At first, the Georgian authorities said no, they would not waive the immunity. But after further negotiations, they decided that they would waive immunity And consequently, the Georgian diplomat was tried, convicted, and is in jail. So any state can waive its immunity and allow its diplomat to be tried in the country where he would otherwise have immunity. Now then, going to the Pakistan case. The Pakistan case is, I think, unique, not unique perhaps, but unusual, shall we say, in that certainly planting CIA agents or spies and giving them diplomatic cover, if that's what we have done in this case, if that's what the United States done, is illegal under international law. When a country receives a diplomat, as I said, the diplomat has to agree to abide by the laws of the country in which they are posted. And no country, or I'd say almost no country, is going to say, oh yes, send your spies in, we'll accept them as accredited diplomats, and they can get on with their spying. No country is going to do that. And when I say, I should say almost no country, the problem I think with Pakistan is that it's always a In a number of instances, it's been a little unclear whether permission has been given by the government of Pakistan for various U.S. operations or not. And perhaps the most prominent example of that is the drone strikes that are going on, sometimes in Pakistan, but right up on the Pakistan-Afghan border, allegedly against Taliban terrorists and so on. Now, the Pakistan government publicly says that they have not given permission for these drone strikes. But there have been rumours around that, in fact, they have given permission to it. This is not to enter into the very hotly disputed question as to whether drone strikes are or are not illegal under international law. But typically, of course, 
no state allows another state to operate military aircraft, including bombings, in its country unless it gives permission to do so. So if we haven't given permission, then you have to find another theory as to which perhaps may, under some circumstances, may not make it illegal. But in any event, that's simply an example of where it's a little unclear whether Pakistan has or has not given permission. Now, in this case of Raymond Davis, where we now know from the lips of the CIA that he is a CIA agent and also had worked for quite a period of time for the Blackwater Company, which is now called the Sea Company, and where he was on video when he was arrested, not claiming to be a diplomat. It's a little unclear as yet, first of all, whether he ever was on a list of diplomats accredited to and accepted by Pakistan. But what it does show is, even if he was on such a list, if he is actually an undercover CIA agent, that means that the United States has been abusing its diplomatic privileges because no state is allowed to send people who are not diplomats, give them diplomatic cover and let them go. And as I say, unless the host state has actually uh, permitted this to take place. When I say that the United States is abusing its diplomatic privileges if it's sending in people undercover... I have no doubt that this happens on a fairly regular basis in most capitals in the world from many countries. So I'm not saying that it doesn't take place on a fairly broad scale. In this particular instance, the two people who have been shot and killed, there is now some suggestion that they actually were members of Pakistan's intelligence services and were assigned to follow Mr. Davis because Mr. Davis was thought to be going beyond whatever his remit was seen as being. So in some senses you end up with some of his colleagues, who presumably were probably CIA people, came to Mr. Davis's assistance and in the process, I think accidentally, ran over another person and killed them. Those people have apparently left Pakistan. I don't know why they weren't originally arrested, perhaps because it was determined to be an accident, but in any event, they have apparently now left Pakistan. We should, without leaving this before we do, say, of course, there's been another very famous case out of Italy where the Egyptian cleric Abu Omar was allegedly abducted by the CIA from Italy and via a circuitous route eventually ended up in Egypt and he claimed various points along the way and in Egypt uh, this was by the rendition system he claims to have been tortured an Italian court has now both indicted and convicted a whole lot of American defendants who, by the time that they were indicted and convicted, had left the country, and they do have in absentia trials in Italy, which are not considered to violate notions of due process, at least in the international sense, in that 
the person had every opportunity to be there and defend themselves, but chose not to. And a good number of the American defendants, again, had diplomatic passports and would have been entitled to immunity. Although, when the Italian court looked at it, they did eventually acquit, I think it was four of the 25 indicted Americans on the basis of diplomatic immunity, but as I remember it, at least nine of the indicted claimed to be diplomats, but the court only, I think, gave four diplomats immunity in that trial. So this was another case, and rendition, of course, is another whole issue about uh, the legality of uh, rendition. Most people would say it's totally illegal. But apart from that, this is another example of the CIA getting diplomatic cover for its agents in another country. We ought perhaps to talk about the Iran hostage. Of course, this uh, happened at the end of the 1970s when the United States had supported the Shah and actually the CIA had overthrown the previously elected government put the Shah back in place and eventually there was the Iranian revolution where at least in the first instance a whole group of students took over the US embassy in Tehran and a number of consulates, US consulates throughout the country. There were some of the diplomats were released but in the end I think there were 50 diplomats that were being held and the US embassies and consulates were in the control of the students initially the Iranian authorities stood by and did nothing. The United States went to the International Court of Justice seeking remedies, namely the release of the hostages and the handing back of the embassy and the archives and so on. And it won that case in the International Court of Justice, both on requesting provisional measures, which are like an injunction, and on the merits. Of course, Iran did not appear in court although it did send in a letter saying that the United States had engaged in various violations of international law against Iran. And the court did say, well, if you've got complaints against the United States, come into court and make them and we'll listen to them. They didn't do that. And of course, Iran did not comply with the order of the International Court of Justice. Nonetheless, some years later, there was an accord worked out between Iran and the United States called the Algiers Accord, under which Iran did comply essentially with the court's order and a tribunal was set up which operates still in the Hague, the Iran-US Claims Tribunal, to settle all outstanding claims. Now, in this Pakistan case, the United States could in fact go to the International Court of Justice It could do so not because we accept in general the jurisdiction of that court. We've withdrawn our general acceptance of the jurisdiction, which you're allowed to do. But because both the United States and Pakistan are parties to the optional protocol to the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and under that optional protocol they both agree that with respect to disputes arising under the treaty, Any party to that optional protocol can take any other party to the optional protocol to the International Court of Justice. So we could, of course, if we really do believe that Raymond Davis is entitled to diplomatic protection, we could go to the International Court of Justice and ask for relief. But I am perfectly certain that we will not do that, because I think if we did, well, first of all, you have to 
exhaust all state remedies and those are in process at the moment so it would be premature to go at the moment but if we did do I'm perfectly certain that Pakistan would be in there making a big argument about abuse of diplomatic privileges interestingly enough this is where we get to the remedy part even though it would be an abuse of diplomatic privilege if what is now being said that we do is in fact the case it would not actually break the diplomatic immunity for Raymond Davis. The only remedy for a country, if you determine that someone in fact is not a diplomat or if they've broken the law, etc., is to essentially declare them to be persona non grata and then they have to leave the country. You have to give them a reasonable time to get out of the country. And then you no longer recognize them as a diplomat. But you do have to give them a reasonable time to leave the country. So even if it was determined that, yes, this person really was not a diplomat, and that was an abuse of diplomatic privilege, it would not give Pakistan the right to arrest him and try him. But this is assuming that he does, in fact, have diplomatic immunity. Now, I should say one more thing. The United States has said that he is part of the administrative and technical staff. Now, if you look at the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, there are various levels of immunity for various staff members. But the administrative and technical staff has full criminal immunity. When you get to civil immunity, whereas a diplomat has almost completely civil immunity there's one or two little exceptions when you get to civil immunity the administrative and technical staff only has immunity for their official acts but that's for civil immunity not for criminal immunity they have full immunity for criminal jurisdiction. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.